0: It's one of those Sundays where we should stand for the reading of God's Word. So grab your Bible if you have it. Shake a leg. Because we're going to be reading another long chapter and section here. We're going to be reading Exodus 15, 16, and 17. The vast majority of it. We're going to pick up in verse 22 of chapter 15. Here's what it says there. Hear God's word. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. Saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I'll put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Now we're in chapter 16, picking up in verse 1. Then they set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. It's not that kind of sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, and on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, what would we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger." Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, and whether they will walk in my law or not. So on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to the people of Israel, At evening, you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you will grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Now drop down to verse thirteen, where we'll pick it up again. And in the evening quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning dew lay around the camp, and when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? Which is literally what manna means, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded Gather of it each one of you as much as he can eat, and you shall take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more and some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over until the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Picking up verse 22, on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside to the morning, and as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it, Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you have refused to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. And so the people rested on the seventh day. And finally, chapter chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. And all the congregation of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. taking with you some of the elders of Israel and taking your hand, the staff with with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us? Or not. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. That you may be seated. <coughs> hmm. Well, we've taken on um, enormous chunks in Exodus, haven't we? 14 weeks to get through 40 chapters, and so I apologize for the length of these readings. But the nature of this is because we're trying to move through it in in this particular way, we are looking more at themes. In the same way, we're going to not so much look at a lot of the details. There's so much we can drop into here in each of these sections, but we're not going to get lost in the details this morning. We're going to primarily stay at a number of different themes. and The theme this morning is really about the, the wilderness life. This is covering a significant section of the wilderness life of Israel in the Exodus. The Christian life is in stark betrayal here. This is actually between the change in verses 15 that happens in the life of Israel is quite symbolic of what happens in the life of your average Christian when they first become a believer and then when they start to live the, the regular mundane life of a Christian. Think about what happens at verse, in the early part of chapter 15. They've just crossed over the Red Sea. God has just freed them from enslavement. He has just parted the Red Sea. He has then crushed and destroyed their enemies, the Egyptians. They crossed the Red Sea. They are now free from slavery. And in the early part of chapter 15, what do they do? They sing a song and they dance. They sing the words like he has triumphed gloriously and he is my strength and my song and he is my salvation and he will reign forever. They danced, they feasted, they sang. Two verses later, here's what it says. And the whole congregation grumbled. Three days, two verses, one grumbling people the height of jubilation to mired in despair and despondency and complaints they go from this is my god and i will praise him as long as i live to where is my god and i wish i was dead this is emblematic of the experience of the christian life and which for so many of you perhaps you've experienced this and which you can have a mountaintop experience followed by a deep and dark Valley. It's one of the things that those who are young believers have to come to understand that this is an experience that many Christians walk through. That you can walk through this great mountaintop experience of coming to know God's salvation in great and profound ways. His grace and his mercy hits you. The sacrifice of the blood of the lamb that Jesus died for my sins. This is amazing and awesome. And then the Christian journey starts. And it is a long journey journey that feels like you're wandering in a wilderness, and that is exactly what Israel will do. God saves them, and then it is 40 years of wilderness journeying for Israel, and what are the realities of a wilderness life? Well, the wilderness life is when the resources are dried up, when the money goes away, when the food goes goodbye, when you're thirsty, when the circumstances of life are against you, when there is when apparently the external parts of your life are things are difficult, when there seems to be no end to the drudgery and the mundane aspects of your life. Wilderness is when you're not even sure you like God anymore, and you're quite sure that the circumstances of your life tell you that God doesn't like you. The wilderness involves deep, often deep and bitter disappointments. Sometimes with God, sometimes with yourself, often with others. If you look at even the first section here that we looked at, it goes like this. It goes a water account, the bitter water at Merah, then the bread in the middle in chapter 16, then water at the rock in chapter 17. But the first one is called the bitter water at Merah in verses 22 through 27 of chapter 15. And what is so disconcerting about their experiencing here is that they experience something that maybe you have experienced which is they're walking through the wilderness, they're thirsty, and then there is a lake that appears. Finally, some relief, some water, what we so desperately need, and it turns out to essentially be a mirage because the water is poisoned. They cannot dr- drink it. And to have that sense of hope seemingly realized and then removed is a bitter water wilderness experience. Some of you have experienced this before. I think of those of you who have spent years and struggled to get pregnant, and then one day you got pregnant, and for a few weeks there was great joy and excitement, and then you went to the doctor only to not hear a heartbeat. That's a bitter water experience. The sense of hope only to be dropped down to deep disappointment, or perhaps you went for years without dating, and the experience of interest from the opposite sex and then that person comes along, and you find yourself thrust into a romance that makes you wonder perhaps this is it, and things are moving along quickly. And then they call and they say, We need to talk. That is a bitter water experience. Or perhaps you've labored hard to get out of debt. You've saved and you've labored, you scrimped and you saved, and then you go to start the truck and it skips. It's a bitter water experience. And why are they in the wilderness, and why are you perhaps in the wilderness in the first place? Who put them there? They're led by a pillar of cloud and fire. Yahweh himself takes them into the wilderness. You see, did they take a wrong turn? No. You see, the question for many of us is when we're in the wilderness experiences the immediate thought is, did I take a wrong turn somewhere? There is possibility that there are things that are consequences in your life, but know this even the consequences of the wilderness, God brought you there. God put you there. Why would the Lord lead us into the wilderness? Moses later tells us in part of his writings here to Second Generation Israel. Is, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy are all the wilderness accounts to help the people of Israel learn and grow in their knowledge of who their God is so that they may be more faithful to him than the first generation. In Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 2, Moses says this, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Why? That he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you could keep his commandments or not. In other words, Moses says that the reason why God leads us into the wilderness is because we didn't know our own heart very well. We didn't know how badly we needed him yet. In other words, the purpose of God in the wilderness is not to quickly transport you to the promised land, but is to transform you through a long-term re-educational process. That's the reason why Moses says, the reason why you didn't immediately go to Canaan is because while it was easy for me to get you out of slavery, it's going to take a long process to get the enslavement out of you. That all the things that you believed about your identity, that education is easy, re-education is way more difficult. And so the wilderness... The suffering of life, the long, long pilgrim journey that is called the Christian life is called God's school. The wilderness is God's university. Now, I'm not the first one to come up with this concept. Charles Spurgeon describes the wilderness just that way. He says it it is the Oxford and Cambridge for God's students. And degrees don't happen overnight, do they? Only the fake ones, the honorary ones. We like things to be quick. Botox, microwaves, pills. And God says my re education plan is going to take a lifetime. A lifetime of wilderness wandering. And so here I want to see three themes from their wilderness wandering this morning. Three themes from the school of the wilderness. The first is this in the wilderness, we receive lessons on dependence. Lessons on dependence. I must say from the outset I took most of this from one particular pastor named Ray Cortez, who was very helpful in helping me describe this. The pattern in these chapters is this utter deprivation followed by lavish daily provision. It's unbelievable time after time. Chapter 15 not only does God take a lake of, lake of bitter water and then turn it sweet they come around the corner and after even their grumbling God says I'm going to give you a whole nother lake a lim." In fact, it appears that they're so close to that it's, it's almost like it, if they just round the bend instead of complaining and whining, Elim was always there to begin with. A place of shade and water. And in other words, what does God give them? Not only does he give them sweet water, but we're going to see the sweetness comes along in all of these cases. Sweet water, sweet bread, that's what manna is. God gives us sweet water, but then he leads them to a place of shade. It is a place of rest where grass grows where they get relief from the heat. In chapter 16, not only does God provide daily bread, he provides it for how long? In abundance, for 40 years. That's 14,600 days of provision by God. But then God provides meat, and then on Saturdays, he provides an extra helping so that they can do what again? Rest. See, God gives water and bread, but ultimately he gives it to us so that we might rest. Chapter 16, they are dying of thirst, and again, God provides not just a smear stream, but a river of water. What does God teach us in the wilderness? God is teaching that we can look nowhere else but to Him. God is teaching us dependence. One desert father wrote this, people come to the rabbi and say, why does God tell us to place the words of God upon our hearts instead of in our hearts? And the rabbi, old rabbi said, it is because as, are we, as we are, our hearts are closed, and we, we cannot place the, the words in our hearts, so we place them on top of our hearts, and there they stay until the day our heart breaks, and then finally the words fall in. For so many of you, that has been your experience, at the beauty of, the, of what God has promised and the beauty of who he is, has not hit, the coin has not fallen. It is like a coin that is stuck in a slot machine, and suffering of BAM has to happen for the penny to drop. In the wilderness, in the wilderness our hearts break. We are broken of self-reliance and of our autonomy, and we are made helpless and dependent. They had no meat, they had no water, they were forced to pray for what? Daily bread. Dan Allender, who's a well-known Christian counselor, said this: "Our spiritual journey must lead us to the desert, or else our healing will be the product of our own will and wisdom. It is in the silence of that desert that we hear our dependence, our noise. It is in the poverty of the desert that we see clearly our attachments, attachments to the trinkets and baubles we cling to for security." And pleasure. The desert shatters the soul's arrogance and leaves body and soul crying out in thirst and hunger. In the desert, we trust God, or we die. This is an experience I've seen over and over again, and not only in my own life, but in the life of those who are in my church. See it in friends' lives, friends who were very self-reliant, the kind of pulled themselves up by the bootstraps, the kind of men who said, we're going to get it done, we're going to do it, and then they found out that they couldn't save their own kids. And then they cried out to God. It makes us dependent and long for something. It makes us long for God. The wilderness doesn't just make us dependent. It makes us dependent because we see that God lavishly provides for us. It is in the wilderness where God teaches us where true bread is, where true satisfaction is to be found. In the wilderness, the wilderness teaches us that we need God more than anything else. I've repeated it so many times, you know it probably by heart by now, but Mother Teresa says that he got, you do not never know that God is all you need until God is all you have, and that is what happens in the wilderness. And in Deuteronomy, Moses reflected on the manna, and he said that the miracle bread was not intended to simply sustain them physically. It was also intended to teach them a deeply spiritual lesson, because here's what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. He says this, And he humbled you, speaking to the people of Israel, and let you hunger, and fed you with manna which you did not know. In other words, what is it, again? And nor did your fathers know it, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, that sounds familiar, right? See, Jesus says it in his own wilderness experience. Where does Jesus say that? In what context? When Jesus has just fasted in the wilderness for 40 days, and the evil one comes and tempts him, and Jesus says, you will not, you will not tempt me. I will live by the bread of the word alone. It is not wealth we need, it is not boats or cars, it is not great vacations or perfect spouses or perfect kids. We, we need God. And what does Jesus say in John 6? We repeated it this morning. Zach read it to you in their liturgy. What do we need? We need the bread of life and the bread of heaven. And this is what Jesus says, that I am the one you need. Don't work for a bread that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And then Jesus says, I am the bread of heaven. I am the one you desperately need. And then he moves on in John chapter 4 and in John chapter 7. He says, I am the water that you drink. If you drink me, you will never thirst again. God teaches Christians in the school of the wilderness, because when it is when we are in positions of the wilderness, the times of testing that it is it requires us to trust him, and we begin to cry out like the psalmist did in Psalm 73 or Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now, understand to get to a place like Psalm 63, you have to be dying of thirst. That is the wilderness life. And the lesson is this, is that God provides for his people, giving us whatever we truly need. And since he is our all-sufficient provider, he himself is what we actually need. And the reality is we need God every day. And whenever you, if you may think you are growing in maturity when you have moved beyond that, but that is growing in immaturity. The growth of maturity the growth of maturity is never growing out of this reality that I need to be fed by God every day. Now, this is radically different, right, than our relationship. If I have a kid who 40 years at, who's 40 years old and still needs to come to my house to be fed, you would say that I'm a bad parent, and that kid is immature. But when you're feeding upon the Lord, 40 years is just the beginning. Time and time and time again, the Lord provides for his people. He showed them that having nothing while with him was the safest of places. Isn't that so good? You see the juxtaposition between the life of... Where does Israel, where are they enslaved? In the Nile Basin, one of the most fertile places in the world, and yet life is awful. And where does God take them? God takes them in the desert where there is no food and no water, and yet life is wondrous because they're with God. What that means is this, is that no, you can have all the treasures and the trinkets of this world and life can be an enslavement to you or you can be in the desert of suffering and yet when you have God in that place, it is like you're at a banquet table of God's feasting. That's life that is satisfact- satisfying. That's theme one. The lesson that we learn in the wilderness is dependence. Theme two is in the wilderness In the school of the wilderness, we take tests exposing our mistrust. Now, listen, like most institutions of higher learning, Wilderness U has an examination system. You go to a school with no grades, that's probably not a very good school. God tested his people, Israel. In fact, and this is a theme that runs through all of these texts and these chapters. In chapter 15, verse 25, it says this, that the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he... Tested them in chapter 16, verse 4. It says this. And the Lord said to Moses, "Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven to you for you, and the people should go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not." God gave His people these commands to see what their works would reveal about what is going on in their relationship with Him. Our obedience was the test of their faith. And notice, it was an open book exam. What is so wonderful about this is they complain and they grumble, and then God provides, and then God goes, okay, I'm going to provide you a test, which means, hey, I'm about to send you back out into the wilderness. Let's see if you'll trust me this time. It's an open book exam. He always provides for them and says, in light of our lessons on provision, how I will abundantly provide for you. Now I'm going to send you out into the wilderness and see if you will trust me in my abundant provision. God is not like one of those teachers who says the exam will be on chapters A, B, and C, and the chapters in the exam is on chapters A through Z. And yet, sadly, this was a test that the Israelites never seemed to pass not only at moral, but sadly throughout their wilderness wanderings, and in fact, even once they get into the promised land. And I want you to see two particular ways in which they fail God's test of their faithfulness. And the university system of God's wilderness, they fail in two particular ways. First is this. This isn't going to be on the screen, but first is this, is they fail the test through disobedient hoarding and gathering. If you notice this about the whole manna Issue in chapter 16, there are all these laws. Hey, you gather this much for a normal day, but then you gather this much for the day before the Sabbath, and you gather nothing on the Sabbath day. And yet, what do we see highlighted multiple times in chapter 16 if you listened well? Moses is constantly having to be annoyed with the people of Israel, and God has, is having to chastise them, because on Monday through Friday, they're gathering more than they need, and it's going to, to, to nastiness in their house, and then on Saturday, they don't gather enough. And then what do they do? On Sunday, they go wandering out and they're overworking. You mean, you see, our fear, our fear that we can't trust God to provide for us, makes us hoarders. Or it makes us overworkers. It makes us addicted to our stuff or addicted to our jobs. And the, the world laughs at us. Every one of us could be on the show hoarders. And by the world, I mean all the rest of the third world. Laughs at the American Christians who hoard our stuff. In fact, we have to have extra buildings where we hoard more of our stuff's stuff outside of our other homes. Every one of us could be on that show. We have insurance to back up all of our hoarding. We have hoard because we are afraid we will run out, and we can only trust in ourselves to provide. So that's one way. saw why so, why so many of you just work and work and work and work and work. Because you, have to, you cannot trust in the Lord to provide for you. You can't take a Sabbath. You can't enjoy God's rest. Or because you hoard so much stuff, and you need more and more stuff, and so you have to work more to get more stuff, so you feel like things are okay, because you entrust you yourself to provide for you. But what's the more primary way we see their failing of the test? Kids, what is it? They grumble. Grumbling is what Israel in the wilderness is most known for, They grumbled at the Red Sea. They grumbled three days later at the Bitter Lake. They grumbled two weeks later about the food. They grumbled a couple months later about the water. They grumbled, they grumbled, they grumbled. They are like kids on a long vacation ride. Their grumbling is entitled by chapter 17. It actually grows in its causticness. They quarrel with Moses. They come demanding water, and they want water now. Their grumbling reaches the pitch of accusation. They actually look at at God and they say, what, no water, you hate us, you want to kill us. Grumbling makes you stupid. They claim in chapter 17 that God is not with them, which is utterly inconsistent and ridiculous. They yell at God and Moses for leading them into the desert and then claim that God is not actually with them. So which is it, Israel? Grumbling makes you foolish. Mind you, the presence of the Lord is right there in front of them. Grumbling is an epidemic. It takes over whole people groups. And might I say this, that to an older generation here, your great disobedience, your great failing of the test of God might be the first act. An overworking, a hoarding of material goods. But to a, a younger generation, it might be simply this, that we are victims and we are constantly whining A grumbling is an epidemic that can take over not just whole people, but whole societies. It is a corporate epidemic, and it's an epidemic that can take over your life. For example, it can actually send you to hell. And frankly, it can make hell for everybody else around you, right? Because grumbling is a sin that we universally see and dislike in everybody else, but we never acknowledge in ourselves, The people that we are least attracted to are the people who are always whining, grumbling, and complaining. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. In his book, The Great Divorce, he's actually describing this woman who is on a... The Great Divorce is this odd kind of drama where there's buses and it's a bus terminal where some people are taking buses to hell and some people are taking buses to heaven and there see various various different characters and it's always a shock as to which bus they end up on and one particular kind of mousy woman who looks like she's never would have done anything against God except as we listen to this woman's voice we notice that she is simply a whiner, and a complainer, and this person who's kind of who's being kind of led through the scene asks this angel, kind of the kind of the somewhat the person. Who's, who's, it's their first-person experience who's seeing all this, asks the angel, "Why in the world? Why in the world would she go to hell?" And he, in, in Lewis writes this. The angel answers, "Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. But you are still distinct from it. There's you, and then there's the grumbling in you. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer stop your grumbling then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. In other words, what is he saying? He's saying hell is for those in which there is no humanity left, merely the machine of their sinfulness. And for many, they may not kill people, they may not ever do anything of great disorder, but if they are simply whiners and complainers and grumblers their whole life, that that may be all that is left of them. Both the grumbling and the disobedience reveal something about our hearts. Right? That's, what e, that's what Deuteronomy 8.2 said that we read earlier. God sends them in the wilderness so that he might test you to know what is in your hearts. See, what is the sin under the sin of our grumbling? It is that we believe that we know better than God. And that God is not trustworthy. We work too much. We hoard too much. Why? Because we have to keep these things to protect ourselves. We grumble. Why? Because my plan for my life is better than God's plan. The test the Lord brings your way in the school of the wilderness often reveals to you an untrusting, ungrateful heart. And you are simply maybe not all that's left in you is an ungrateful know-it-all. And understand this Jesus comes and he gives us himself. And he says, I am the bread of life and I am the water that you desperately need. And we look up and we go, God, is that all? You gave us Jesus to walk with us, to feed us all along this path, this journey. And we look at you and go, Is that all? Where's the house and the spouse? Lord, have mercy on us. One last point. Things get worse in chapter 17. The high point of the grumbling and complaining hits in chapter 17, and we see our third theme. We witness trials of mercy. There's a pattern that happens in each of these three accounts. Here's how it goes. There's an incident. God tests them. There are, in the first incident, there's grumbling. God provides God tests. There's an incident too. They grumble. God tests. Or God provides. God tests. Now we come to the third incident. In which there's more grumbling. And the people of Israel say, wait. Wait, 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 wait. No more tests. We will test you, God. No more saying, I'll provide for you and this is a test, people of Israel. No, God, we're going to look at you and say, this is a test upon you, and what follows is not necessarily readily apparent to the English reader's mind and reading of the text. But what falls is a court scene. The people look at God and they charge him. It actually says it multiple times. It says where the people put God to the test. It's a, a word that means trial. And they go further. Moses tells God in verse 4 that people want to execute him. They want to stone him. The people are judge, jury, and executor center. Moses says to the people, you're not quarreling with me. You are angry with God and you're bringing your accusations and you're bringing God on trial. Their grumbling and accusations means this, that they are looking at God and saying, we are above you and you are below us. We will test you, not you, us. And when things go wrong, when life does not meet our expectations, we are quick to blame, put the blame squarely on God's shoulders. Once again, C.S. Lewis, he has a book called God in the Docks, which is the English term for the dock is the person who is sitting in the defense chair. He says this, God is in the dock. Man views itself as quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war and poverty and disease and other hardships, we are ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. God, we will test you. There's a famous play that describes this, and I think I may have brought this up a number of years ago, but there's a play by an old Lutheran pastor named Gunther Rutenborg who was a pastor right after World War II. In the play, he deals with the general populace of Germany as they were beginning to find out more and more about the death camps that went on in their very midst and that those who knew about it in their country. And they actually, in the play, there's essentially a court scene in which they're trying to figure out who is responsible for the Holocaust. And they say, this is awful, this is terrible, this is, uh, this is disgusting. And so the common people say, but, but this isn't our fault, this was the leader's fault. And so they go to certain leaders and the leaders say, no, 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 it was the army's fault. And they go to the various officers of the army and the, armies go, the army officers go, no, it, oh, it wasn't our fault, it was the, the upper general's fault. And on and on it goes until finally they go, well, we can't find anybody whose fault it really is. So what do we do? Suddenly they realize this, well, you know what? We can blame God. We know who should be tried and judged for this. It's God. Why did God make a world in which this couldn't happen? In which, why did God live in a world, exist create a world in which he could let people do this? Why did God make a world in this, which this sort of thing could be allowed? Surely God deserves some sort of blame for this evil and suffering in the world. Now what happens, like in chapter 17, when you start accusing God like that? How does Moses respond? Moses gets angry. Moses finally says, Lord, what do we do with these people? In other words, it's an invitation of, hey, I think it's a good time to end this. Let's go ahead and take them out now. Lord, what are we going to do with these people? And yet what happens at the end of the count of chapter 17 is God doesn't take the people out. Instead, once again, Once again, they accuse him of malpractice, of seeking to murder them. They want to put God on trial. They want to stone Moses, God's representative. And God says, no, I'm going to provide you water from a rock. How can God be so patient with a people like you and me who've been given Jesus and the spirit of God and yet time and time again, we look to the world for our satisfaction. How can he be so patient with us? With our utter distrust? I mean, have you ever had that moment as a parent? where you are like, you've provided things after things after things for your kids, and you're finally, you lose it. You're like, that's it. I want to grab you by the scruff of your neck and throw you out the door. We are done with this behavior. You are so ungrateful, right? There's nothing like this as a parent. This sense of just the ingratitude in your kid. And this is who Israel is. They gather, they're so disobedient. Hey, gather one day's bread. Now we're gonna gather two. Hey, gather two days bread. No, we're only gonna gather one. God, we want water. You want to kill us. Well, these people obey me in anything, God says. They failed and failed and failed. And so how's the story go? God abandoned them in the desert. and He strikes them there. End of story. That's how it should go, right? That's not what happens. God says, these are my kids. And he goes on providing manna and water for them for 40 years. And then he gives them the promised lamb. They said, God, you're awful. And God responds by giving them more food and more water to drink. How can he continue to be in such, such, such abundance to people who are so ungrateful and so unworthy? So the Lord says, okay, people, in chapter 17, you want a trial? You want a trial? I'll give you a trial. We think the trial The trial here is seen in a number of elements in this account. Here's what they are, to help you see it. First, he says, Moses, get your staff. Now remember, what's the role of the staff in the play so far in Exodus? When he shows up to Pharaoh, he turns the Nile into blood, an act of judgment. What does it? The staff. The staff eats Pharaoh's snakes. The judgment. The staff is the means of judicial authority. What is the means by which he takes the water at the, the Red Sea and sends it crashing down upon the Egyptians? The staff. The staff. It's a symbol of judicial authority. Go get your staff. And in other words, the other way, the, 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 the Hebrew word for staff is rod. Go get the spanking spoon. Second, he says, call all the elders what that means is this, is the elders of the community stood as witnesses to judicial proceedings to ensure that justice was done, to ensure that the execution went out, went, went of, the, of, the, of the trial went about the way it was supposed to. And so there's going to be a trial. But who's going to be on trial? It has to be the people, right? God says, you're trying to put me on trial. God says, okay, we want a trial. And what does it say? Verse 6 is the key, key verse. Look in your Bible there. Exodus 17, verse 6. And he says to Moses, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Very quickly, you need to see a couple of things here to understand this. God identifies himself with the rock. I will stand on the rock. Yahweh sits on the rock. It doesn't say in what form they knew that Yahweh was there, whether the pillar of cloud and fire went and moved over the rock, but we understand that God is at the rock. In fact, Paul picks this up and we understand more fully from the New Testament who is at the rock. 1 Corinthians 10 verses 3 and 4. Paul said, we actually read this last week, he says, we all eat the same spiritual food and all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank from what? The spiritual rock, and the rock is Christ. Who was at the rock? According to Paul, the pre-incarnate Christ, God says, I will stand before you at the rock at Horeb. And you see, to stand before is an ancient terminology that was the language of the inferior standing before the presence of a superior. In other words, when I hear my two kids fighting in the back of the house, and I bellow, hey, get in here, what do I say? Stand in front of me. Superior will talk to the inferior, and I will judge. And yet, what does God say? I will stand before you. I will stand before you. Are you getting it? Are you seeing where we're going? What's happening? Come Come to your authority. Come be assessed. And yet, God is saying, I will stand in front of you. God is saying, you want to put me on trial? I will lower myself so you can put me on trial. And then what does he say to Moses? What are they to do? What is Moses to do? put me on trial, and take the staff, take the rod, and strike me. Strike the rock. In the play I mentioned called The Sign of Jonah a few minutes ago, they decide it's God's problem. The Holocaust is God's problem. God is to blame. God is the one. And what's so fascinating in the play, they end it this way. They say, God, you're the blame. It's not us. And they give out the verdict. The sentence is death. But their verdict goes on and gets more specific. They say this, let God become a human being. Let him become a homeless person. Let him become a wanderer on the earth. Let him lose a son. Let him die. And when he dies, let him be ridiculed and disgraced. Of course, that is exactly what happened, right? God sent his son in the world to be struck when we failed the test. The rock was Christ because like the rock, Christ was struck with divine judgments. This is what happened to Jesus on the cross. Christ was bearing the curse of our sin. All of your griping and your complaining and your lack of trust in him, he took all of that. It says in Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, the the rod, With his wounds, we are healed. That judgment that Christ received on the cross is the proof of our protection. It shows that we will never suffer eternal death for our sins. God has taken the judgment of our guilt upon himself, and now we are safe for all of eternity. Now, this means two things for you. This means two things for our closing. This reveals the true nature of God's type of testing. When you go to school and you take a test... The purpose of educational tests are to qualify or disqualify you. If you're in first grade and can't pass the test, you don't get to go to second grade. If you're in the wilderness and don't pass the test, you don't get to go to the promised land. And so what happens for a people who can't pass the test? But understand this, this is different God's tests are different, because he takes all of our failures, all of our big fat, in red, F's, circled, and takes them and gives them to Jesus. And it means this, that the testing that God puts in your life as a Christian is now not there to qualify you. It's not there to say, okay, you can get into heaven, but it's to sanctify you and transform you. It's how that the wilderness can actually be a transformative process and not a destructive process in your life. God's tests are like the tests of a father where you, you move and you, you push your kid to do more and more and more because you want them to grow. And yes, there may be negative consequences or positive consequences for how they pass or do in that with the test that you give them, but they don't lose their sonship based on their, their failing of the tests. No, the test of our God and Father is simply to sanctify us. I think of the old, old hymn, how from a foundation, the last line goes like this. When through fiery trials they pass away shall lie. My grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only that design thy dross to the consume and thy gold to refine. That means the wilderness is about purifying you, not about consuming you. And the second thing, it means this because of what Christ did on the cross and did in his life, is it shows the power of the bread and the water that is in Christ. But he he didn't simply come and take all of your F's. We looked at it already. Jesus goes in in Matthew chapter four. Jesus, in Matthew chapter four, he gets baptized. He comes up out of the water, like in the Red Sea. And immediately it says the Father, the Spirit, leads him into the wilderness where for 40 days he has no food and no water. And then the evil one comes and tempts him. And what does it say? And yet Jesus did not sin. In other words, what happens? Jesus passes the test. In other words, what we would say is not only has Jesus paid for all of our sinfulness, but Jesus is righteous for us. Which means this. Which means this, that he passes the test on your behalf. And so that in God's record, it's not just that you simply don't have an F and you have to keep taking the test. It's that on your record and God's school book, you have an A. You have passed the test. And what it means is this, is that in Jesus, he goes, oh, you can't pass the test. Thinking more in terms of you can't can't get yourself to the promised land. You're going to fall and stumble. That's all right. I'm going to pick you up. I will feed you along the way, and I will help you drink. It says this in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 30 and 31, these beautiful words. The Lord your God who goes before you will will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes, and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. You see because Jesus passed the test. He he did all that was necessary to get us home. And so what does he say? He says, I'm going to pick you up and put you on my shoulders. God carried his people all the way. And guess what? They like us. They went kicking and screaming. They went fussing about the heat and the lack of the accommodations and coach. But he says, I'm going to carry you all the way through the wilderness, and I will show you that I am your provision. I will strengthen you, and I will transform you, and I will make you more like me. And, and, and when you fall flat on your face, when you Christmas tree the test, when you, can't, when you can't take another step or you refuse to take another step towards the promised land, I will pick you up and I will carry you. Because I passed the test. I walked through the wilderness so that I can get you home. And this is how you get through all the tests that God may bring in your life. You remember that he is there with you, providing for you physically, spiritually, all the way. But then ultimately, he is the one who is carrying you. And the test is merely there to refine you and make you as beautiful as gold. Let's pray. Our Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, you have taken care of us every step of the way. And we thank you for passages like these in which we are both reminded about our unfaithfulness, but also see in unbelievable, beautiful terms, your utter faithfulness on our behalf. And so Lord as we face whatever tests you're you're putting in front of us today in this week in this month in this season of our life I pray that we would be a people who are trusting in you that we look back and we remember what you did for us in getting us out of Egypt and we look at that of your promises of provision in the old and the new testament And we look to your provision and satisfaction in Christ Jesus. And we look to your promise that you will carry us all the way through. And that that would give us the motivation and the power that we need to take the next step. To keep moving on. To keep trusting. Lord, I pray that you would reveal in this room our grumbling, complaining hearts. Or our hearts of utter self-sufficiency. Lord, so may our our sin appear as it is, which is great, but may your grace in Jesus appear greater. We pray this in his name. Amen.